Okay, as you wander on back, we're going to uh, jump in and start uh, start our series of messages here in the book of Acts. Um, doing transitional ministries, there are a couple things that I think, at least from my perspective, are important to address uh, in this season. <clears throat> uh, they will be, for me anyways, they have been and would be uh, issues relating to the health of the church. How, how, do you, how do you measure the health of a church? Do you measure it in terms of its size? Do you measure, measure it in terms of its budget? Do you measure it in terms of its number of conversions? Attendance, budget, conversion, A, B, C. How do you measure the health of the church? <clears throat> Oftentimes, I'll address a variety of things that I think are important factors in the health of the church. We'll get to some of those from time to time. What's liable to happen here in this study through the book of Acts is I'll work through uh, expositionally the book, but there will come times where I might pop up with a message that addresses an issue of church health. I may fit that in. So that'll be kind of like a periodic parentheses, okay? <clears throat> the other thing that I think that's important is for any local church is to make sure that they are rightly hooked onto the parent denomination. We live in a day in which uh, it tends to be a little bit more in or cool to be independent or non-denominational so that there's no necessary tie-in to a parent organization. <clears throat> so you'll have a, a neighborhood church that isn't hooked on to anybody. But then, you, again, you'll have neighborhood alliance church that's hooked on to the alliance. So it, it, uh, there's this whole thing. For me, I love the alliance. I am in it because of I, I, I appreciate its uh, mission and values. And another thing that I would do from time to time, and will probably pop up during this time in the Book of Acts, is uh, focus on some of the values of the Alliance. What are the things that are important? And what are the core values, which I would assume would be core values for this local Alliance church. You may not package it all the same way, but I think those values will probably be there. So that's what we're going to do. It. <clears throat> now, it is my understanding from past pattern and preference that you that you really prefer to have more of the expositional kind of thing uh, where you will go through a book of the Bible or several books of the Bible over the course of a year and you'll 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 just kind of drill down a bit. Now I, I I've looked from on the website of the content that has been explored in the past, and so I'm I'm not going to any of those. The book of Acts, I think, is an appropriate place for us to be in this season uh, and appropriate. Now, I will tell you this. I've taught on the book of Acts. I've preached messages on the book of Acts, but I have never gone through the whole book of Acts beginning to end in X number of years of ministry. Now, you may think, think that's odd. That I haven't done that, but 
we, we tend to do things a little differently at times. And so this is going to be fun for me uh, because there's a lot of stuff you can deal with in the book of Acts. We've called the thing Church Alive. And uh, there we go. Beginnings. I, this is almost like a movie. The beginnings, you know, the, whatever, whatever it is. So, so we're calling this thing Church Alive. And I can't think of a more apt description of what the church ought to be than a lie. You don't go to a church and say, are you a dead church? I really want to come here. You just don't do that, you know. Uh, you want to go to a place where there's life. You want to go to a place where God is at work. And it may not be, it, it, it may not be huge, but if there is life at that place, you'll go there. You'll be there. You'll continue to come back there. It's the kind of place, I believe, is a welcoming place. It's a place where you are unashamed or unafraid to invite some to join with you. You see what's going on from God's word. You see what's going on in the lives of people. You see the changes that are being made, the changes that Jesus is making in the lives of people, and, and you're not afraid to share that. You're not afraid to align yourself with such a group of people. So um, Church Alive is going to be the overall theme. And since we're going to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, uh, we're going to start with the book of Acts chapter 1. And I'll read down through the first eight verses, making no guarantee that I'll get that far. So there are a lot of uh, things that we are prepared to just kind of take our time with, and that's good to take our time on this. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> the book of Acts is a book of history. It records the early ongoings of the people of God as they began 
to follow Jesus, this risen Lord, and began to impact and influence people around them with the message and the changes that God was doing in their own world. Now, we don't have from this book the name of the author, but by, you probably know that Luke was the author of one of the Gospels, and Luke is the author of the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, in some gatherings of Scripture or compilations of Scripture, Luke and Acts will just kind of hinge together as kind of like a, almost like hinges on a door. You know, it, it, Luke on one side, the Gospel on one side, the book of Acts on the other. <clears throat> in my former book, Luke says, that's the Gospel. That's his Gospel record of the life of Jesus, his story. Now the book of Acts moves to history. Same word, just different emphasis on a different syllable. So you work it out that way. It's a former book. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I want to look at key phrases that pop up as you walk through. The first one is this. He says, all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach, those two pieces. When someone dies, you don't often focus on what they are teaching or what they are doing because they're dead. They're not doing anything. But here the language is, here are the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now I've heard a rather un complimentary description that has been made about teachers. And the, and the line goes something like this. Some do, others teach. And it's, I, I don't even think that's even backhanded compliment. That's a terrible compliment. Uh, if you can't do anything else, maybe you can teach. And that, that certainly is uh, at least off base from many of the teachers that I know practice what they preach, who do and bring things to life in terms of that teaching kind of thing. But a couple of things that strike me on this business here. First of all, what Jesus began. You see, uh, the Gospel of Luke is the record of all the things, or a number of the things, that Jesus began to teach. Things of people whose lives were changed, lepers that were healed, demoniacs that were delivered, uh, people that were dead brought back to life. We have a whole lot of things about the things that Jesus did and also the things that he taught. You think about the Sermon on the Mount as a part of the Gospels. He posed them aside, whether on a plane or a mount or whatever it was, and he begins to teach them. That was the thing that seemingly drew so many people to him. They they just were, were astonished with him. As one language, the language one writer puts it this way, because he he taught them with authority, not like the scribes, not like the existing religious rulers of the day. There was something different. There was something attractive about his teaching. He used parables, wonderful stories. Everybody loves a story. Everybody's got a story. Everybody loves a story. And Jesus hitchhiked 
on that hunger for just the practical stories of life, about, about soil around them, about, about seeds that, that are all about them, about people and the way they respond, uh, it, 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 about, about guy that's out and sows his seed and, and, and some of it comes up pretty good, but there's weeds in it. Now, how do we deal with that? And just very practical, simple stories that he seemed to connect with, resonate, the people resonated with him. So the first key phrase is that Jesus began to do and to teach. Emphasis to me on began. You see, Jesus, uh, well, let's see. You might put it like this. Um, if someone were to ask Jesus, what's going to happen? He might say, well, I'm not all sure, but I want you to know I'm just getting warmed up. I'm just getting warmed up. I began it. I didn't finish it. I began it. And my plan is for the people of God to continue the work and do the job that I will empower them to do. That's verse 8. We'll get there eventually. So the first key phrase are the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And both pieces are important for us as well as for him. Um, you got to do. Christianity is a, is a, is a, is a faith, is a, a following of doing. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. We can, we can get educated beyond our obedience in terms of information. And we can be informationally smart, but not actualizing that truth very well. And that's the challenge of Scripture. Jesus began to do and to teach. The first couple of verses talk about that. Until, verse 2 says, until the day he was taken up to heaven. We'll get to that eventually in a few moments, uh, but probably not till next week, actually. But that's another issue. Uh, giving the instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had choose, chosen. A couple of things with those phrases there. It, it seems like every t I, I love language when it makes a statement and then it describes it, it modifies it, it changes it. It adds a little more information each time. So here he says, he gave them instructions. Through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. Three pieces there. To the, through the Holy Spirit, they haven't received that yet. He has promised it in the Gospels that I will send you another comforter and he'll be the one that leads you into all truth and all those kinds of things. The descriptive of what that paraclete, that for one who's come alongside to help, that comforter, what he will do. He says that, that, that Holy Spirit communicated that to the apostles, that group of people that he had chosen, those 12, a lot of disciples that will eventually follow, less Judas, and then they try to figure out to make this full complement of 12, and they come up with another plan that goes like nowhere. But, but it was their idea, but God works even in spite of our crazy ideas at times. But he's, he, the Holy Spirit speaks to the apostles, the ones he had chosen. You've probably heard it described before in terms of uh, trying to find uh, uh, people that you'd like to choose to, to build this kingdom on. And, and you go through the job description and you, you eliminate every one of those guys that Jesus chose because the, 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 somebody's hot-headed and somebody's got sticky fingers and 
somebody doesn't like somebody else in there. And there's two brothers that are always trying to vie for a special preferential treatment in the process. And yet God chose those apostles. Just like in the course of our own journeys, he comes and he taps us on the shoulder and says, follow me. And however that works in the mystery of the attractive work of God, the attracting work of God, to bring you into a place of choosing to follow Jesus Christ, he still is in the business of calling men to be his followers, his disciples. We wouldn't call them apostles like they would here, but certainly disciples and followers of Jesus. So he began to do and to teach. Now verse 3. We're making good progress here. Verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Key phrase number two, many convincing proofs. One translation says, many infallible truths. So what are those truths? What are the things that he conveyed to them? And that must have been quite some lesson or quite some experience and journey. The language there, the word in particular, it won't do any good to give you the Greek, because, but let me tell you what that word convincing means. It's a word that was used to present, in a legal setting, to present a case so logically compelling that it may be considered as completely proven. In other words, there's no wiggle room for any other verdict then what that compelling argument would be. In the court of law, it would refer to an argument so overwhelming that no other conclusion could possibly be considered. So what are these? What are these? He gave to these men many convincing proofs that he was alive. How do you prove that Jesus was alive? Let me give you a few. These aren't anywhere on the notes. They're on the screen, but here are a few. First is the Roman guard issue. You recall the story where they wanted to make sure they had a guard posted because they were afraid somebody was going to steal the body. So let's put this in place. The Roman guard issue. After Jesus is buried, Pontius Pilate orders a Roman guard placed around a tomb. Now, when you think Roman guard, you think of a soldier. But the Roman guard is a collective term to describe a whole contingent of soldiers, if you will usually a group of 16 men. Four soldiers would have been placed immediately in front of the tomb. The others would be in a semicircle around, and they would rotate. So it's going to get some sleep, so you don't have to pull duty all night. They'd rotate, so that there, but there would be this Roman guard, the group collectively. They changed those shifts every four hours. They were elite. They were highly trained. The penalty for failure in terms of this guard to, to care for uh, for that, or even falling asleep on duty, was death. So you, this was not, maybe this is where they got the phrase graveyard shift. I don't know. I, I, probably not. Probably not. But, but you know, they, you, this, you don't want to snooze because you lose on this one, that's for sure. Um, they were soldiers who had every reason to stay awake. One of the reasons, a convincing proof, was the Roman guard issue. They said all that in place. And yet, no one could have gotten past them to steal the body from the tomb, if that was their concern. You have that issue, or that one. Then, then there's this little issue about a stone. 
You know, they talked about the stone that was rolled over the, the tomb, the entrance. So they would remember, remember the concern of the ladies when they went to the grave? Who is going to roll away the stone? What do you do with a two-ton stone? You don't move it by yourself, I can tell you that. I was at Lowe's the other day, yesterday, and as I was coming out, I was I was parked waiting to make exit on traffic light flow and noticed there was a lot of mess in the front of the, uh, uh, in the roadway. And here a fella had had gotten a, 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 a trailer load of what looked like decking, like to replace a deck. And he must have had 60 boards. He had to have that many. But they weren't on his trailer. When he went out of the parking lot, these 10-foot boards extended back beyond the edge of his trailer. And when he went down to hit the dip, they promptly put all those boards right in the middle of Union Deposit Avenue. Block traffic, it was a mess. And here's this guy and this gal, frantic, probably embarrassed. I couldn't tell, but I, I would be embarrassed. I mean, you know. And, and they're out there two boards at a time, hauling them out of the, you know, the kind of thing. Now, I don't understand why he didn't just come get his arms around all 50 boards, pick them up, and move them. It would have been much more efficient, but it would have been impossible because of the weight of that thing. So the stone has always been an imposing kind of thing. Once that stone was rolled into place, it probably took three or four people to move that. The Gospels tell us that the soldiers sealed the tomb as well. It's another piece that they do, which meant that they put some kind of uh, compound, adhesive, whatever, to set it in place, and perhaps a, a rope that would stretch to cover over the rock stamped with the seal of the Roman governor. And even the penalty for breaking the death, breaking that seal, is very similar to what happens when you fall asleep as a guard. It was death. And so they would want to make sure that would be, that would be held in place. And that stone argues against stealing the body. And then, and then another infallible proof or convincing proof is that of grave clothes. You recall that when they do go into the tomb, they find these grave clothes laying right in place. If, in fact, they were going to steal the body, if that's what, if that's what, what in, could, did happen or could happen, they wouldn't find those grave clothes all nicely laid right there. They, they, they wouldn't take, if they wanted to steal the body, they wouldn't take to unwind it. And the resins that were part of the embalming process uh, had probably hardened those things. So they probably so stealing the body, those grave clothes are, are powerful evidence that those uh, the body was not stolen. Uh, and you, you believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, he simply came right out of those grave clothes. And I don't know how the mystery of that occurred. But then again, I don't understand the mystery of how the rapture occurs either. But I just know that's the blessed hope that we have and the appearing of Jesus Christ. He comes and goes through there. And then the issue of an empty tomb is a convincing proof along the way. Uh, the skeptics have never been able to explain that fact. Where, what happened? 
where is the, what, what occurred? When Mary arrives on Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. When Peter and John arrive, the tomb is empty. When the other disciples find the tomb, it's empty. When the Jews inspect the tomb, it's empty. When the Roman soldiers wake up, it was empty. No one has ever disputed that fact. They just they have this empty tomb. Well, what do we do with this? And the only thing that you can do with it is, is simply say that he is not here. He's risen. And that's what the message of the resurrection and Easter is all about. They could have nailed the body if they had found it. And they could have put an end to this thing about this, these followers of Jesus' business. Just find the body. Nail it on a, on a city wall somewhere, and that would be the end of this Christian business. But they couldn't do it because the tomb was empty. The body was gone. And there seems to be no answer to that preaching of the apostles that this Jesus was risen from the dead. We have here in the book of Acts the statement about his ascension and that which is yet to come here. But that was another piece. And, and, and then there's convincing proofs about appearances. Um, you, have this, you have this record of at least a dozen appearances in the Gospels and here in the book of Acts as well, uh, where, where he shows himself to individuals. Sometimes it's Peter or Mary. Sometimes it's a small group. Sometimes it's two guys walking on the road to Emmaus in that wonderful story. Sometimes it's to a group of 500 people. It seems like there's a lot of appearances that go on. And, and, and then when you get into the book of Acts, you find he, he appears to Stephen. Just as he's in the process of being stoned, he appears to him. There's a, there's a lot. Oh, and also John on the island of Patmos. Lest you want to forget about that last book of the Bible, that appearance that Jesus makes to him. All of those are eyewitness accounts. They are those convincing proofs. You could dismiss a couple. You could say, well, that's only a couple people said that. But no, there's a, there's a boatload of people. You can't dismiss them all. The accumulated weight of all the appearances is overwhelming, is convincing, to use the verse of the language of verse 3 in terms of its proof. They point to one conclusion, one conclusion only, and that is Christ rose from the dead. And they just have no other... And so in this apologetics course that Jesus gives to these followers... He says, here are a lot of things. And, and, and there's more. I, I, I could talk to you about uh, the thing that you get the impression that initially these disciples didn't believe. They didn't believe that Jesus was alive. It was incredible to them. How could this have happened? You know, I know he prophesied it. I know he told them it was going to happen. But they just didn't get it. It just didn't stick. It didn't make quite sense to them. And so that in itself, Luke tells us that when the woman who saw Jesus reported that to the disciples, they thought it was an idle tale, just wishful thinking. They had to be convinced against their wills that Jesus rose 
from the dead. And that's an argument in favor of resurrection. And then the thing that's, that strikes me most in terms of convincing proof is the difference, the radical change that occurred in those followers. How do you account for that? If Jesus was not risen, how do you account for the difference that occurs in the lives of these followers? For a moment, consider their state on Friday night, crucifixion night. They're frightened, confused, dazed, fearful, disoriented, disheartened. Every one of them had run for cover. They believed that Jesus was dead and they would never see him again. In their minds, Jesus was gone forever. Peter denied him. Other disciples stood at a distance. Only John would come near the cross. The women who went to the tomb on Sunday morning, fully expecting him to find a dead body there. And two disciples meet him on the road to Emmaus, and they're walking away from Jerusalem, their faith buried with the corpse of their master. Disciples are huddled in an upper room. We'll find them in a few moments. What, what happened? What happened to these followers of Christ? Look at the scene a few weeks later. Those same disciples are standing boldly in temple courts, preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he'd come back from the dead, and that only by repentance and faith can we or anyone be saved. What changed them? What changed them? Only one credible explanation. They had seen the risen Christ, and he had changed them forever. And as word spread from one person to another, they began to shout the good news. He's alive. He's alive. Church alive. And that's where we move in terms of many convincing proofs. Well, I'm working up a sweat. Ah, uh, this is good stuff. So, continuing on. Uh, he appeared to them, uh, the end of verse 3, over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, um, I I liked one I liked all the songs, but I liked one of the songs. I, except one of the languages the phrase come set your church on fire. I'm not big on that. We, we lost the church to arson fire in New Cumberland, so I'm I'm really one kind of gun shy at that point. But at any rate, but but I understand what they're talking about. I understand what they're talking about. Man, you want you 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 want you want life. You want life. You want church to be alive. And he, in here, he's talking about not only his convincing proofs, but he appears to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Key phrase number three is speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, uh, when I was in college, I was first introduced to a book by a scholar by the name of John Bright. And his book was entitled The Kingdom of God. It's, it's been a kind of like a, a core teaching book that uh, provides a good integrating theme to the work of God. He is in the business of establishing his kingdom. Our lives are all about our own kingdom. 
we want to we want to run the show. We want to do what we want when we darn well want to. And uh, thank you very much. And don't get in my way because I'm on a, a mission to establish my own kingdom, build an earthly kingdom, whatever that would look like. In the Gospels, Jesus refers to the kingdom in one way or another. That phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, which is a Matthew preference, usually pops up. Kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. He speaks of that about 80 times. Is teaching about this kingdom, whatever it is that's described. It's, it's clearly the central theme of his teaching. In Luke chapter 4, it says that he was sent for the purpose of preaching the kingdom of God. So that God is going to show up and establish his earthly reign with spiritual implication among you. Now that topic of the kingdom of God is vast, but it basically refers to God's sovereign right to rule over this universe. The universe that Genesis tells us he created. It's his right to come and rule over that. It specifically refers to God's right to establish his rule over this rebel place we call earth. And if you get the long picture where man essentially goes in rebellion against God and says, I want to do things my way, Adam says that, Eve models that, everybody since then has been doing pretty much that, they just want their own kingdom, we're going to rebel, we're going to do our own thing. The language here is that for a period of 40 days, he spoke about the kingdom of God. 40 days, a 40-day event. Can you think of the things in the scriptures that occurred in 40 days? That's a, that's a fascinating number. Let me, let me give you a couple. The rains fell for 40 days and 40 nights in Noah's flood. I count Genesis. Moses spends 40 days in God's presence up on a mountain. The 12 spies are sent into the land, and they are there, oddly enough, 40 days in the process. A generation wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. Jonah warns Nineveh about the coming judgment that God is going to visit in 40 days. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus appears to his disciples here 40 days. Uh, one of the first Bible dictionaries I ever bought is about that thick. It's called the New Bible Dictionary. There's a big compendium, maxim opus kind of thing. Uh, but a good basic Bible dictionary. And it makes this observation. It suggests that the meaning for 40 is often associated with each new development in the history of God's mighty acts, especially as they relate to salvation, like in the flood, or redemption from Egypt, bringing them out, or Elijah and prophetic era, we didn't talk about that one, or the advent of Christ, or the birth of the church. It's, it's a new thing that God is doing, and that's what the book of Acts is about. It's about the new stuff that God is into the business of doing. He's longing to do something new and special. And that's where I think you can get excited about looking into this particular book. For that period of 40 days, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And then, and then Luke says, let me tell you about one time. You know, I give you all these 40 days. Let me tell you about one time. Here's what he says. 
verse 4, and uh, while he was eating with them, one occasion he gives them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Key phrase number four, wait for the gift. Wait for the gift. Now, we are not a very patient people. You, you get together at birthdays and you have gifts. If you're a kid, that that the first question is, aren't you going to open your present? And, and the kid says, no, I really wanted to just wait a long while. For the, no, you tear into that kind of thing. But here Jesus says in this story, he says, I want you to wait for the gift. Uh, Jesus had promised the gift in the Gospel of John. I will send you another comforter, and he's going to come to you. And I will not leave you comfortless. You know, I'm, I'm going to take care of things. It would seem a bit odd. Why, why couldn't the disciples simply name it and claim it? That's a phrase for these days. You know, God promised us we're going to have the Holy Spirit, and by golly, we're going to get it. You know, and, but instead he says, "Wait, wait." Ever wondered why sometimes we have to wait for things? Um, a phrase that I use sometimes seems to be typical in life: "Hurry up and wait." Hurry up and wait. You get in the line. And the other line moves, and you're stuck. Went into Giant the other day. You must think I just go into stores all the time, but it's not really the case. I went into Giant food store to get some odds and ends of this, that. There was a fellow in front of me in one of the one of the uh, mobilized cart kinds of things, and uh, I, he looked like he had a lot of items. Didn't look like it anyway. So I got in line behind him. I thought, okay, this is not a fast you know, under 25 items or whatever. So, I thought, is there a bottom, is there an end to the, is there a bottom to that cart? You know, I mean, let me pull some out from underneath. So I waited and I thought, okay, okay. So come time to pay. And he says, I don't have my wallet. I thought, oh no, oh no. And I thought, man, am I going to, what did they do? Well, the gal rang him out, kept all the stuff. He got out of the cart, walked out to his van. And I got checked out. As I was going out, he was coming back in. So apparently he really did forget his wallet and had to go get the means to pay for that kind of thing. But, but I, I wasn't thrilled that I had to wait. Okay, you, go through a, you go through a drive-through, a McDonald's or Wendy's or whatever, and if you have to wait more than a minute, you start to get, you know, you just going, come on, get to the program here, you know. Uh, but there may be reasons why God often tells people to wait on him. Now, let me suggest a few. Sometimes he asks us or tells us to wait in order for us to rearrange our priorities. Maybe some things are not in line with his kingdom. Maybe there are things that are going on in our world that need to be reordered, and sometimes we need to wait to 
to rearrange those priorities. Sometimes he invites us to wait to test our faith, to see, really, are you going to believe that I am the king who can establish his righteous reign and rule on earth? Are you willing to trust me in that? Are you tested? Are you willing to trust me by faith? Sometimes he asks us to wait to purify our motives, to make sure we're doing things the right things for the right reason. We're good at doing the right things for the wrong reasons, but sometimes motivation needs to be reorganized or purified in our world. Sometimes it's to increase our gratitude when the answer finally comes. Sometimes he knows the therapy of waiting might lead us to a better place of gratitude, thankfulness to what God has done. Sometimes it's to remind us that he is God and we are not. You know, that's a, that's a vital lesson. One of the first things we need to learn in the process, God is God, I am not. The quicker you learn it, the better off it's going to be. Um, we had shared, and some of you may be very well aware, that we've had this death in the family kind of thing. Sometimes when you, when you observe a person's life, you may wonder um, about their eternal destiny because they don't do things the way you do them. Maybe they don't go to church very much. Maybe they, maybe they are of a different theological flavor than you. And immediately you become a little bit suspect of them. It's amazing how we can become a little suspicious of people who are different than we are. Amazing how quickly we can get to that point. And we can, we can just put a question mark in our mind over them. Um, when, when, you're, when you're doing something like that in a funeral setting, um, you might hope that that person has made a conscious choice on their part to accept the free gift of God, salvation through Jesus Christ. You would hope to that end, but you don't know. But there are a lot of people who go through all the right good stuff and can be people who are surprised when they say, when they hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And so ultimately, the book of Job has it right. That we trust our soul to the God of, earth, God of all the earth who will do what is right. He will do what is just. Ultimately, it's not my responsibility to be, to be saying, you're saved. You're saved. I'm not sure about you. You know? And I realize that salvation needs to show evidence of something. It needs to make a difference. The radical change of disciples, what made them different? It was Jesus was alive and he was alive in them. But ultimately, God is the one who deals with all of those things. And we trust our life and our care to him. He said, don't leave, but wait for the gift promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 will be the account of what happens when they get baptized with the Spirit. We'll get to that one of these weeks.
in the, in the process. One more key piece, and I'll, and, and I'll just scratch the surface on it. I will tell you that we'll come back to it next week. So just hang on. But key phrase number five. Two phrases, really, that are part of this. One is, one that says in, in verse 8, you will receive, and the second phrase is you will be. So here's the language. Um, they ask the question, uh, Lord, in this in this small group kind of setting, Lord, at, at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? And, and it's not... It's not an issue of, are you going to restore the kingdom? The issue is, at this time, are you going to do it? It's, it, it's, it's a timing issue. And, the, and Jesus essentially says, uh, I don't know if he put it this way, but we might. We'd say, that's none of your business. We, we would use that phrase. But he essentially, in a very gracious way, says, that's none of your business. Language ever puts it that it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father is set by his, by his own authority. You have to believe from the truth, from, from that statement itself, that, that the Father has set a time, that, that you can trust him. Just, just don't, it's just not now. I mean, we can, we can go through, uh, I could prepare a sermon that talks about five reasons why I believe Jesus is coming next week or tomorrow or this year. And I can get through it and I can preach with passion about that and talk about all the evidence and the sign and this. When you get done describing about who's who and what's what and all that kind of stuff, the bottom line is when you get to the question and you say, when's he coming? You say, I don't know. I do know this. Now is my salvation nearer than when we first began. I know that part's true, but we don't know the times. And so there are ample number of illustrations of people who were convinced that they knew the time and they gathered together in fields waiting for that special date that God had revealed to them and the day came and went and they just moved the egg off their face and just tried to crawl around somewhere where they wouldn't be noticed as much. So uh, there can be all kinds of stories of that. But verse, verse 8 is probably the key verse to the book of Acts. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you, you'll receive power. Uh, when I was a young Christian, I, I remember getting this book uh, written by a fellow by the name of Fritz Ridenauer. And the book of the, the title of the book was called How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. I like that little book. How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. And some people want you to get religious, and that'll make you a Christian. He said, no, that's a little different. So he was talking about that. And he was from the book of Romans. Essentially, he's studying the book of Romans. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word power is simply, if we were transliter transliterating it from Greek to English, we would say, you will receive the dynamite of God when you receive the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon you, the dunamis, the dynamic of God. Uh, you'll receive that when it comes upon you. And when that happens, you will be something. You will be witnesses. A witness simply tells what he knows. That's all he's asked to do. A witness shares what he has experienced along the way and gives testimony or witness to that. A witness remains loyal to the end. 
He continues to subscribe to the truth and profess that truth. You will receive, you will be. Now, we'll, we'll come back around on 1-8 next week when we start again. Okay? Shake your head and say, yeah, okay, I'll show up, I'll be here. And if you've made alternative plans, I, I absolve you, my daughter, my son, whatever. But the point is, it's a continuing kind of thing. Now, uh, we haven't talked about that key verse piece and what it looks like in terms of its expansive direction, what it means to be a witness, what it means to have the power of God upon our life. So on this ongoing adventure, on this growth of Christianity, we're just at the very beginning. So let his kingdom be built in you. We have that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Huh? Your kingdom come. Let his kingdom come in you, anew and afresh today. Pause with me for prayer. Oh, Father, it's a start into a book that has so much for us about the things you began to do and to teach. And we know that as interesting as this piece is, you're just getting warmed up on some stuff that's going to happen that's going to knock the socks off of people. It will be incredible. I say, how can this be? Thank you that you are have only begun and the church can be a place where life is descriptive of it. It can be a place where people can connect and the kingdom of God can be set loose and built in our lives and in this place. So do your work among us for the greater glory of God. For what you'll do, we'll thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.